Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie, and if you're new to the show, welcome. Now, normally, my regular co-host, Abby, is here with me discussing our favorite horror movies together and with you. But she just had a baby and is on maternity leave. So today I am joined by one of my best friends and the person who introduced me to this film that we're talking about today, and one of the smartest and funniest people I know, Kate motherfucking Scully. Say hi, Kate. (laughs) Hi, everybody. I am so happy that you could be here, Kate. I'm so happy to be back. Yay. Okay. So today we'll be discussing the 2006 horror thriller Perfume, The Story of a Murderer. (laughs) It's based on the book by Patrick Suskind, and it was written by Andrew Birkin, Bernard Eichinger. Eichinger. Sure. Thank you, Kate. (laughs) And Tom Tyquer. Yes? Yes. It was also directed by Tom. Uh, it stars Ben Wishaw, uh, Alan Rickman, Rachel Hurd Wood, and Dustin Hoffman. We're, I'm laughing because Kate knows this, but this <laughs> this cast is very strange to me. But anyway, it's fine. I'm probably the only I'm the only one who thinks this, so it's I'm just gonna random. keep I'm just gonna keep going. <laughs> so we're not shy about spoilers. So if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and you watch it first. Okay. Are you still here? Great. Then let's get this morning started. Kate, would you please read us the plot summary? Absolutely. So, Jean-Baptiste Grenouille, born poor and unwanted in a dog-eat-dog world of 18th century Paris, grows to discover he has a remarkable, unmatched sense of smell. This remarkable gift feeds into an obsession to capture the elusive and rare aromas of the world by any means necessary which leads Grenouille from cityscapes to the vast French countryside. He learns methods and sciences of the perfumist until his lust for scent begins to target young women and the business at hand takes a deadly turn. Will Grenouille achieve his pièce de résistance and sate his hunger for perfection? Or will his obsession allow him to fall into the hands of a merciless mob demanding retribution? Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) Thank you, Kate, for that lovely plot summary. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the production of this film. So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Perfume, the Story of a Murderer is based on the 1985 novel by Patrick Suskind, which has sold over 20 million copies worldwide. Suskin reportedly thought that only Stanley Kubrick and, <laughs> I mean. and, my, and I think it's a Milos Forman could yeah. do the book justice and he refused to let anyone else adapt it to film. I could see that though, you know, I could totally see a Stanley Kubrick version of this movie, which is weird. Yes, and I, I think, I forgot if I actually put this in here, but I think he thought it was unfilmable. 
Yes. It, this uh, book for a long time was considered completely unfilmable, which, well, we'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, it obviously isn't. And yeah, yeah. like you said, we'll talk about it uh, later. But uh, I just thought it was interesting that Kubrick, of all people, was like, yeah. this can never be done. <laughs> never! But it, and it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings was kind of like that. Nobody thought that yeah. that could ever be made into a film. And, you know, the, the special effects yeah. and, you know, like, obviously, like, and I think that was why, like, the special effects just were not up to par with, mm-hmm. like, the vast imagination that came with the Lord of the Rings. Now, for perfume, there really isn't special effects that no. are needed. No, there's it's really very little. No, it's more of uh, the aesthetic of the film Mm -hmm. and the theme of the film is almost unfilmable. Yeah. But like you said, we're going to talk about that and how they succeeded in that. Um, So the producers uh, read the novel and uh, when it was first released, they immediately approached Suskind and um, Bernard Eichner, um, he was, I guess, a friend of Suskind's and he was like, listen let me have the film rights to this. I will I will make it a good movie. I will make it happen. <laughs> yeah. And Suske was like, no. <laughs> and no, I don't think you will. Uh, nah, <laughs> uh, In 2000, Suskin relented and eventually sold uh, Eichner the rights. And the screenplay went through over 20 revisions to get God. to the final shooting script. Yeah. The three writers worked hard to create a faithful adaptation that captured the atmosphere and climate of the novel, yet at the same time have a have a specific and individual perspective in terms of the story and the main character. Okay, so in an interview with David Lamble, Tom Tykwer said of Ben Wishaw, uh, who plays Jean-Baptiste, quote, I saw him at the old Vic playing Hamlet. There was something mesmerizing, disturbing, and beautiful about him that I had rarely seen. Ben is able to present a certain amount of innocence as much as there's a darkness around him. You always feel attracted to him, and at the same time, there's something scary, which was exactly what I was looking for, unquote. Makes sense. <laughs> yes, and I, I've actually never read this book, but I was reading a lot about the book, and apparently Jean-Baptiste is more... Uh, I guess the word maybe would be masculine in the yes. book. Yes. I've actually read the book in college. Um, okay. And he plays more of like a forefront narrator in, in the book. And it's all through like his his mind and his vision. And he basically narrates the whole thing. Uh, okay. Yeah. And what I so I think it's kind of interesting. And we'll talk more about this later that they have Ben Wilshaw playing him because Ben is definitely a more. Or. A very uh, gender fluid person yeah, in general. Yeah, definitely gender fluid. Um, he's thinner than maybe mm-hmm. the Jean-Baptiste in the book would be. Um, mm-hmm. And he is, in real life, a gay man. So I really? Think it's really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I think that's where, again, we'll talk about it, but I think that's where this is really interesting, where we can look at this as a queer film. So anyway. we'll keep going uh okay so i love this film's musical score and i gotta tell you it made me tear up a few times listening to it um i didn't realize this until doing research for this episode but the composer of the film well one of the composers was director tom tykwer (laughs) and two of and two of his friends johnny kilmeck and reynold heel 
According to Peter Cowie, quote, by the time it came to shooting the film, a, a substantial portion of music had been composed. Tykwer hired a small orchestra and recorded them performing the score. And then he actually played this recorded music on the set so that the actors could explore the atmosphere and the acoustic world of the film, like while they were acting in it. It is gorgeous. It's, it's so absolutely good. beautiful. Yeah, so Perfume opened in Germany on September 14th, 2006, and was number one on the box office charts in its first three weeks. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, by comparison, the film performed poorly in North America. The film had a theater uh, had a three theater limited release on yikes. December twenty seventh, two thousand six. Yeah, big yikes! Uh, before being expanded to only two hundred and eighty theaters on January fifth, two thousand seven. The film completed its theatrical run in North America on March 1st, taking in just a little over $2 million. Yes, Roger Ebert, who, Kate, you told me, really loves this film. He um, went crazy for this film. <laughs> he attributes its poor U.S. box office performance uh, because it got lost during the Christmas rush. And uh, there were a ton of, I guess, great films that came out around the same time, so it just got lost. Overall, the film did well enough, and with a $60 million budget, it made $135 million altogether. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. So, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, as of January 2021, on Rotten Tomatoes, the film had a 59% approval rating based on 129 reviews with an average rating of 6.2 out of 10. Oh, come the come <laughs> yeah, I was actually kind of surprised by this. Uh, the website's critics' consensus reads, quote, Perfume is what you'd expect from a Tom Tyquer-directed uh, movie glamorizing a serial killer, a kinetic visual feast with a dark antihero uh, that's impossible to feel sympathy for, unquote. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about that later. <laughs> But I was I was actually kind of shocked that critics didn't like this film. Me too. Me too, honestly. It, it seems like a, a big film nerd critic kind of film. And so the fact that nobody liked it just blows yeah. my mind. And the biggest, like, theme of the critiques is like, well, you know, it's just, it's not relatable. And it's so not realistic. It's like, really? But, realistic? Well, really? <laughs> again, again, we're going to talk about why it might not appear realistic to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so according to Debbie Lynn Elias, the film is, quote, horrific, tender, emotional, visceral, psychologically enthralling, yet beautiful, unquote. And according to Mark Massey, quote, for all the emotions it might evoke, only fans of edgy, deranged cinema will find this singular fantasy palatable. Well, I unquote. guess you're going to call me out, jerk. Yes. <laughs> I guess I'm the edgy, deranged cinema file. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. It's so weird. I'm like, what is wrong with people? <laughs> a lot of things. A lot of things, Gracie. And we'll get into that more later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I've seen worse films than this that people oh, are like, God, you yeah. know what I mean? So whatever. Anyway, so, okay. So, Kate, does this movie pass the Bechtel test? Technically, yes, it does pass. At uh, Laura's birthday party, Albine, one of the twins, says, let's have a game of hide and seek. And Laura says, yes, which is 
Uh, okay. That that <laughs> does that. Yep, that does yeah, count. Yeah. So Albina is not really an essential figure to the story, and you don't know her name until after she said that line. But and she does she technically dies. have a name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she technically has a name, and she definitely has a pseudo conversation with Laura. So yeah, only by the slimmest margin does it pass, but it does technically pass. Ugh, that's so disappointing. <laughs> truly. <laughs> Okay, so Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. <laughs> no. There's a lot of women in this film. Yeah, very, which surprised very, me. Very few of them have lines, and yeah. very few of them have, even fewer have names. Yeah. Um, and most of them are victims. So yeah. I didn't really want to count them as supporting cast because they're kind of just used as pawns (laughs) so yeah um okay did a woman write direct produce edit or shoot the film yes Gigi ori i think is how you say their last name uh was a co-producer was the final girl or main character a person of color no in fact there are no people of color in this film. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. There were definitely black people in France. There were. <laughs> yes. But then it's like, but then it's like, what, the representation though would have been they probably were yeah. enslaved. So, you know, it's like. Not necessarily, because it is France in the seven, uh, 18th century, and France was renowned for being um, abolitionists at that time. So, yes, they would have technically been free. They wouldn't be slaves. Oh, my gosh. You're Mm -hmm. right. Well, then what the hell? (laughs) What the hell, producers? (laughs) No excuse then. No. Because then you could, they they could have had great representation. Whatever. Die the fuck. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, anyway. Um, So there were no people of color. That's great. No, it's not. Anyway, were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No, but we will be talking about the queer subtext that is presented in the film. Okay, so yikes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, shit. Yeah, okay. Let's get into our, let's get into our discussion. Can that be the title of this episode? Yikes. Oh, shit. What? Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> So, Kate, uh, how about you talk to us about the science and psychology of smell? Yes. So um, the sense of smell has evolved in humans to not only have a physical response, but an emotional one that kind of guides our everyday lives and often subconscious, subconsciously dictates our preferences. Um, in the case of Perfume's main character, Grenwy, Uh, Scent dictates not just his physical and emotional responses to the world, but it really encompasses every aspect of his world at large. Um, According to an article in Psychology Today, um, while sight and hearing are often regarded as the top of the sense hierarchy, smell is is an old and powerful sense. One of our earliest functions as simple organisms was to detect harmful or helpful molecules in our environment and to either seek them out or to avoid them. Smell helped our ancestors avoid rotting food that would make them ill and were sensitive to certain pheromones sussing out complex mechanisms in sexual compatibility. This made them <laughs> wary of risky short-term mating opportunities, you know. 
avoid those one night stands people. Um, it has been found in trial experimentation that women are generally more discriminant and fussy about smells and odors, possibly because evolutionarily speaking, they were more invested in the results of reproduction, bearing children and caring for them. So they're, they're a little more attuned to that. Um, everyone has a unique body odor, which is used to differentiate kin, those who smell familiar, from strangers, those who smell different. From ordinary circumstances, people find their own bo signature body odor either too familiar or too faint to detect, which makes Grenouille's situation kind of interesting. But again, we'll talk about that later. Um, humans have both main and accessory olfactory system to detect smells and chemicals with neurons that identify odors and transmit information about it to the brain. So the brain's olfactory bulb, basically the center of how it processes um, smell within the brain, uh, sits alongside regions that actually process emotion. So as a result, often dysfunctions of smell are closely associated with mood disorders. Um, and the notion that humans have a poor sense of smell is a widespread myth. For a long time, scientists believed that the brain could only, the human brain technically, could only differentiate approximately 10,000 odors. However, wow, that's a lot. Already, you you think though. so? I was like, oh, that's still a lot of odor. Uh, that's a lot of stink there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> however, new research suggests that people can discriminate as many as a trillion odors, which is insane. Um, and oh, yeah, that's pretty nuts. But to put that in perspective, for every one odor that a human can distinguish, a dog can detect fifty. So oh my god. That is, they, they literally can smell everything, which is pretty cool. Um, That's awesome. So although our sense of smell is often downplayed and deprioritized compared to you know, sight or hearing or touch, um, smell is vitally important to our survival and prompts a lot of day-to-day -day decisions and functions. In perfume, the story takes uh, that day-to-day -day reliance of the average person and amplifies it tenfold for Grenway. Yeah, so hearing all of this about the psychology and science of smell, you can kind of, and then of course, you know, knowing the story of this film, you can kind of see why everyone was like, yeah, you can't make this into a film. <laughs> you can't you can, smell how he smells. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I have, I did see that there were, um, uh, that there were like showings of this film where the, whoever was doing it was like would like puff like scent into the what? air like into the theater yeah what? so you can like do like a smell vision version oh my of God. this it film. was John Waters it was just John Waters <laughs> in the theater going like I'm gonna make this happen thank you John <laughs> but you know it's like but that's only for like like specific like fun kind of side 4D. showings like yeah. Yeah, like when you watch this film at home or if when everyone saw it in the theaters when it first came out, that wasn't a thing. That only became a thing afterwards when people would show this movie for fun or whatever. Um, so let's talk a bit about how they were able to make this movie that does that is all about smell without actually having smell in smell the theater with your eyes <laughs> yeah basically so according to neil miller quote as for giving a film the sensation of smell 
Director uh, Tykwer uses vibrant colors beautifully to enhance those items that plague Grenouille's keen nose. From the bright red hair of a beautiful maiden to the lush grass in a meadow, some colors stand out for a reason. They make your mind create the sensation of smell out of sheer memory. It creates a third method of enjoyment right next to an intriguing story and a visual feast, unquote. Mm, pretty smells. <laughs> <laughs> so for, yeah, my, my college fine arts professors are either going to be really proud or really ashamed of me, so we're going to see how this goes, but I'm going to oh, okay. like, discuss some like color theory of this. Yes. So in a film that's so adamantly is based within the theme of one sense, which is limited to, you know, the available interaction of moviegoers at goers outside of like, as we mentioned, John Waters smell a vision, or, you know, just the general ambiance of theater going experience. I really miss that fake butter smell. Um, mm -hmm. the, the creators did a really magnificent job utilizing visual triggers in regards to Grant Lee's interaction with the world using, as you had mentioned, like color, satur uh, color saturation and focused light. Um, one of the main challenges of making the film was to convey the smells and the world of sense that Grenouille experiences. The filmmakers strive to emanate uh, smell visually without the use of special effects, which I thought was really cool. Um, producer Bernd Eichinger uh, said, Suskin's gift in his ability to let his readers through language experience Grenouille's world, which is revealed solely through the sense of smell. We have done the same with a different language, one composed of sound, music, dialogue, and of course, image. Uh, Tykwer describes perfume as having a very distinctly dark aesthetic due to both mm -hmm. the lack of adequate light <laughs> during the film's time period. Um, yep, because, so quite know, literally. Yeah, quite literally they were in the dark. Um, and the nature of the storyline. Um, the filmmakers took inspiration from painters uh, that specialized in darkness with few sources of light, such as Caravaggio and Rembrandt. Both artists, it can be noted, not only use shadows and light to direct focus to a subject, as the film does. Um, one of the, the opening shot of perfume is just Grenouille's nose, so that's yeah, kind of cool. Um, but utilized luminescent gold-washed hues and like really rich red colorization as well. Um, Perfume begins with a very cool monochromatic color palette. So there's browns and grays and very muddled blues. It's it's very, very cool and kind of dulled down in a way. And right. as Grenouille discovers more sense, the palette warms and drastically opens up in... Uh, and in the scenes where Grenouille goes to Paris for the first time or goes... Um, different part of Paris, because he's technically born in Paris, <laughs> but right. he goes um, into the nicer parts, I suppose, of Paris for the first time. The filmmakers suddenly add more powerful colors to the sets and costumes and props and lighting to kind of represent Grenouille's experience of the new smells and his enlightenment. So warmer colors um, are most vivid as the film proceeds. Red indicates a hunger or a primal need in the colors of you know, the women's hair, mm -hmm. the roses that are used in the, the essence that he's learning how to, you know, make perfume. And even like when he's born, the fish that are like dead and they're bloody and disgusting, like those are 
like the first flashes of red you really see. Um, oh yeah, and, and he's covered in blood because he yeah. was just born. Yeah. Yep. So it's that kind of like hunger or need to survive, um, kind of represented. And yellow and gold is really frequently used through as as the film goes on, and it kind of indicates an enlightenment, such as you know the perfume store that Grinley first encounters is absolutely doused in like gold and light and everything's very gilded um, within the store. And the young, the first young woman he becomes obsessed with that's carrying plums that are, you know, bright yellow, um, like they're gold yeah. and plums. And then Laura's dress as she rides past Grenouille for the first time is also gold. So it's like these flashes of like enlightenment and pursuit, you know, filtered throughout wow. the film, which is pretty cool. Which is kind of interesting because the colors themselves are very vibrant. Yes. But um, the way that they are presented to us is different. Like, I'm, what I'm trying to say is the plum girl, she has beautiful red, bottled red hair. Mm-hmm. And, like, obviously it's bottled red because it's, again, exaggerated so that we kind of imagine, like, what she might smell like. Um and uh, and I can see why critics were like, well, this isn't very realistic. Well, that's why because yeah. we're this. It's all over exaggerated. It's almost so like a you... caricature of reality. It's, it's yeah emphasized and more grandiose well, than it would be because they're trying to emphasize how he sees the world through smell. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I think it's interesting that there's the plum girl with golden plums. So it's a very like natural um gold right and then you have laura who is wearing a gold dress which you know and so but she you can see that she's very rich Mm -hmm. so these these two women who are very similar looking um and of course they smell similar too which is why he be he becomes obsessed with them um and wants to bottle that scent uh, but they come from two different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So that's actually kind of, I just thought of this. I was like, that's actually kind of an interesting comparison. And I know a lot of people, when they talk about this film, they talk about like, you know, like the perfume industry and the smell industry and the beauty industry and blah, blah, blah. But like, I kind of think that it's like interesting that Grenouille has no, he doesn't care. Yeah. where you come from he doesn't mm-hmm. care like he just cares about how you smell to him that is the only thing that matters that is yep. the real power because that's all he really knows so I, I love how they they explore that with color so Absolutely. that was great thank and you kate speaking of power <laughs> yeah let's talk about for the love of power or the power of love power of love <laughs> um so the big ask with this movie and the book too is why grinley is doing this as a character and it's involved and we could easily make a three-hour episode talking about oh why God. this go- guy does exactly what he does let's not do that i love and you, then we would never that. actually have a complete thought because no it's like- <laughs> No, it'd just be rambling. It would. Yeah, we're just sitting here drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and be like, oh, okay, let's go. <laughs> let's just get on to the next subject. Um, however, I think it's better to focus on three important points, which is power, love, and identity. Identity is kind of its own thing, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, so let's focus on power and love. So for the love of power, 
materialism and class distinction rules this world of the film. Everyone is after something, either it's wealth or position or claim or stature. Um, Madame Gaillard, who's uh, at the very beginning taking children in, she doesn't do it out of generosity or compassion, but she does it strictly for the money. And she makes it abundantly clear. Like she doesn't give a shit about these kids. She she needs the money. She wants the money. Um, Baldini, uh, the perfumist, takes Grenouille in exchange for his own career's revitalization because through Grenouille he sees profit. And he also only later on provides traveling papers for a book of perfume recipes from Grenouille. Like he, he doesn't do anything for nothing. Um, Antoine, who is um, Alan Rickman's character, uh, arranges at the very beginning when he first meet them, um, is arranging his daughter Laura's relationship with like this rando rich guy in exchange essentially for better business. So everyone wants something like doesn't matter your status from prince to pauper. And if you have nothing, you are essentially nothing in this world. Mm -hmm. um, and perfume in its in and of itself is a status symbol. Um, since only the rich really could afford the luxury because of the labor and material costs to manufacture it. There's a lot that goes into making a perfume in like, even like in real life and the film, they kind of go into a lot of it. It's, it's very labor intensive and expensive. And I can only imagine like back in the day, how much that must, must have cost. Um, so while the poor live in like their own refuse and sickness and literal muck, the rich could afford fine things like perfumes and nice fabrics that really set them apart from kind of the drudgery of the lower rungs. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I don't know if it's a class satire or, you know, an analysis of like, I don't know, we'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> Um, so one analysis I found on the power in perfume uh, writes a combination of religion and bureaucracy is introduced as the first avenue through which an individual can enjoy power. It is this combination that made sure that the infant Grenouille stayed alive in the first place. Later in Grasse, the same combination attempts to exert its power to do away with Grenouille, the serial murderer of young girls. Grenouille moves steadily up the social ladder from the lowest depths of society to a journeyman, and finally, in his own eyes, a god. Everyone else with whom Grenouille comes in contact with is similarly dreaming or actively working on achieving similar types of upward movement, making this type of movement a very central concern. Since his goals are purely personal, there's no need for Grenouille to climb the social ladder any higher than he does, as his goals aren't monetary or fame-based. This ties into Grenouille's conception of himself as a godlike figure or a supreme ruler. Grenouille's state of being a god isn't achieved through titles or government, but through scent, which, as Gracie, you pointed out, transcends class and status. Yeah. Um, Many of the individuals who play roles in Grenouille's life are climbers, quote unquote, like he is, but they seek financial success or social recognition rather than purely selfish pleasure that Grenouille gains from creating his ideal perfumes. Notably, a number of these individuals suffer from some form of a miserable or untimely death after they're rid of Grenouille. 
Yeah, that's mm-hmm. an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most of these deaths are also caused by the very things that motivated the characters to climb in the first place. As when Baldini's death occurs, when his shop, the fanciest address in town, falls into the river. Or Madame Gaillard uh, having her throat slit for the purse of coins she treasured more than the children she cared for. And similarly, Grenouille's method of death is only possible because of the perfume that he creates. Despite their different goals or motivations, almost all the characters see those around them as a means to an end or means to advancement. In this way, the characters are reduced to mere tools rather than considered as full human beings. This becomes apparent when Grenouille is a child, as he survives by proving useful to Grimal and Baldini. Grenouille uses this way of regarding people to work towards his own goals. And Grenouille can't experience pleasure or satisfaction when he achieves his goal and finds himself in possession of absolute power. In death, and in his method of death in particular, Grenouille simultaneously creates an intense show of power and destroys both himself and his tool or method for obtaining this power. Yeah, that's a lot. But it is like a valid reason as to why he might want what he wants. But you have another theory, like, and that is the power of love. The power of love. love. Yes. So, really, why can't Grenwee achieve enjoy? Because he achieves his goal, and why can he enjoy it? And push it to the boundaries. Why does he not do all the things that the narrator, played by the absolutely fabulous John Hurt, um, Mm. mention, have the king of France kiss his feet or the pope declare him the new messiah? Because he could, either way, with this new tool. The simplest answer is because the perfume, as magical as it is, as much of an achievement as it is, is still not him. Grenry realizes that as a person, as a human being, he will never really be loved or respected or really even truly seen. He's invisible. He's without scent or self. And this perfume is a glorious technicolor dream coat on his empty form. Mm -hmm. It functions as a grandiose mask onto which people project their emotions, but it never truly touches his own self. During even the execution scene when Antoine, Alan Rickman's character, storms onto the stage and says, like, says furiously, you can't fool me. Grenwy looks almost like hopeful for just the briefest of seconds um, that Antoine is not fooled by the power of the perfume. Yeah, and he opens his arms like he's like, okay, good. He's yeah, he's like, oh, thank God, somebody cares. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, yeah. He hopes that any emotion or genuine feeling towards him, as himself, like as Grenwy, exists because even hatred is better than indifference. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that hope just flickers and dies as soon as Antoine he he relents to the perfume's power and actually, you know accepts him as a son and Grenwee's like god damn it (laughs) yeah (laughs) that is that whole scene is so sad and right before it too it's just like very weird it's so weird yeah there's a lot (laughs) going on in that scene and people get very distracted by like well the setting of it but there's something very sad happening with Grenwee because he's he's giving up on all of it and realizes that like he he failed failed himself more than anything right yeah yeah absolutely it's i i that was the scene that made me cry 
It's right sad. before right before Antoine shows up. <laughs> is, you can't fool me. <laughs> yeah, and so when he's just standing there, he closes his eyes and he imagines the plum girl. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> I was crying. Oh. I was like, he's a terrible murderer. <laughs> he's but terrible. He's cry- he, but I was crying for him, and yeah. it's it's very and sad. He'll, he'll never be loved, and this world is shallow and self-serving and fleeting and Gren, we would rather you know leave it to its own devices than play this masquerade because mm-hmm. he, he yeah um according to heather addison Grenwee experiences an emotional epiphany that does not bring him humanity but at least makes him yearn for its possibilities like the Grenwee of the novel he uses the super perfume i love it's called super perfume yeah <laughs> super perfume to save himself from execution for the murders of the young girls when he lightly sprinkles himself with it and well, the crowd becomes adoring and eventually participates in an orgy. Yep, that's right, kids. An orgy. I, if you weren't going to watch this movie before, you're going to watch it now. <laughs> Spoiler alert, there's an orgy. Um, <laughs> and as the scene unfurls before him, Grenny realizes that while he has this human adulation on mass he does not have a relationship with any one person he cannot participate in the orgy oh because he's not capable of making the physical connection upon which it depends right in that moment he realizes and recognizes the value of intimate human relationships and he feels profound despair because he will not and can never experience one in that moment, he plans his own destruction. Like the Grenouille of the novel, he proceeds to his place of birth and using the master scent to attract the intense adulation of a mob that tears him apart and destroys himself. So it's ironic, really, that in the end, it was a very manic and manifested love of many that Grenwick was consumed by when he himself could not feel or emote the love that he longed for. Right. Because even when they eat him alive. They literally his, eat him alive. <laughs> yes. His face doesn't change. No. No. He is. It's like he can't even feel it, which is really He's sad. numb. He's completely numb. Yes. And I think it's interesting that once he's gone, everyone just kind of walks away like, Wow, that was delish. They're like, that was the best dinner ever. (laughs) And they don't talk. But that's how the people at the orgy are, too. Like, they don't talk about it. No. They're like, all right, well, that was. They blank it out completely from their memory. They're like, we're never going to talk about this, reference it ever again. And they pretend it just never happened. Right. And so the fact that Grenouille just disappears. Yep. Off the face of the planet. And everybody who has had any contact with him dies. Mm -hmm. Or they they completely forget about him he disappears like he never existed and the murdered girls like they blame somebody else yep and so okay so we have a, a murderer for these girls and it's not Grenouille, it's somebody else it was the guy that suspected him of being weird the entire freaking time too in grass yeah he was the one that yeah. ends up yeah uh. yeah it's sad it's actually yeah. the ending of this film is really sad super <laughs> depressing like, go see really it today <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's an interesting way that it kind of came full circle. You know, it's like it didn't it, almost like it's a weird story because it never really really needed to happen. Yeah, because nobody remembers it. So it's like 
you know, so that's kind of like an interesting argument where it's like, did this did the story of Jean Baptiste need to even exist because he didn't really exist? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, and so it's it's also kind of meta in a way too because the story is fake. It's not it's not based on a true story. It's based on actual like murderers, I suppose, but like very loosely, and uh, it's not really so much about like a. <laughs> It's not really about like a, a true story, which when I first saw this, I was like, oh, I bet you this is based on a true story because nope. this is insane. <laughs> and it's not. Nope. And the fact that it is such a bizarre story, you thought it's got to be true. Yeah. It's like, this is <laughs> so you know I mean? freaking weird and unbelievable. This has yeah. to be a real story. It's like, no, because no, no. it's stranger than fiction. Yeah. Right. And so it's just like, but it's not. It is complete fiction. It is out of this world. It is so bizarre. Uh, and it didn't really need to happen because Grenouille didn't exist. Okay. So in the essay, The Scent of a Woman, quote, woven into Grenouille's olfactory odyssey is a darker journey. His obsessive pursuit of new aromas eventually draws him to the scent that is, quote unquote, pure beauty, making all others worthless. His desire to possess it prompts him to commit multiple murders and therein lies the darkness of the narrative not as one might suspect in the act of murder itself but in the nature of the victims all of whom are young girls on the cusp of womanhood in a strikingly patriarchal vision of the fragrant fragrant world in which the most perfect odors are those emitted by virginal young females the novel's pursuit of scent becomes a tired exercise in the objectification and exploitation of women yeah. unquote and the fact that these are young white women too yeah like they are the only ones that matter and it real true crime actually has this issue too where we only talk about young virginal white women who yeah. are killed we never talk about um indigenous women, women, of, color. women of color yes yep. especially indigenous women absolutely yep. and so this sort of adds to even though it's a fictional tale it sort of adds to this problem that we have in society where who who gets the attention of yeah. being a vic of being a victim or even a survivor? So it, it compounds the issue more than anything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's true. Um, according to Neil Miller, quote, and while the hero does start killing people about halfway through the film, there is a certain lightheartedness to it. <laughs> For some reason, we understand him, forgive him, and then want him to win in the end. Perhaps it is great storytelling that allows us to disregard the moral implications of Grenouille's killings, or perhaps it is just some subconscious human perversion, unquote. Uh, yeah, Neil, speak for yourself. I don't think... Well, <laughs> this is why I'm like, this is why, like, when I was, I started crying during that ending scene, I was like, Wow, this is really problematic of me to do. <laughs> but they, I think that's kind of the point. I think you're supposed to be conflicted with your feelings. And I think this is why one, one of the reasons why critics really didn't like this film. Yeah. I don't think they were comfortable feeling sympathy for him. So they said, we don't feel sympathy for him. They could understand it, I think, was more than anything. Like, they're like, well, do we you know, do we supposed to sympathize and empathize with him? Are we supposed to hate him? What are we supposed to do? It's like, well, he's a, exactly. he's a canvas for like a reflection on this society and how it functions. So really 
you know, you could go either way. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, like, we do make uh, heroes of uh, actual serial killers. Celebrities. That they're celebrities. And, like... Because it's... Yeah, it's more... It's like we uh worship them there's like weird serial killer worship that really bothers me and it is so tiring there has been something going around that has really made me want to (laughs) puke it is that it's that one uh a stencil etching or whatever of uh, you've seen it. I think I can. You, Kate, you it sent it me. to. Yeah, we sent it to each other in the group chat that mm-hmm. we're in with our, some other friends. And it was um, a trigger warning here, but it's, they say choke me like Bundy and eat me like Dahmer or something like that. So gross. And I wanted to throw my phone out the window. Like I was so angry like, when I saw that. The person that made that, who hurt you? <laughs> and why are you this way? <laughs> They don't have, there's no sense of, of tact. <laughs> and no appreciation for victim, too. Like. Right. Well, it's, I'm, here's the thing. Somebody made a great argument about that, where it was like, if that, if that had Epstein on it, would you have made it? Yeah. No, probably not. Because Epstein is more current. You know, people are maybe more likely to not. <laughs> You know, to not put him on on stuff, um, his image on stuff. Uh, also, I I'm like, yeah, Dahmer and Bundy, like they killed kids. They're yeah. the youngest uh, of what of Bundy's victims. Yeah, was twelve or thirteen. So, you know, not only are you worshiping a killer, but you're worshiping child killers. And I, it's messed up. Uh, it's so messed up. It's so messed up. So. I feel like there is an issue with this film where we do feel sympathy for him, but because it's fictional and because it is, uh, and because he gets his comeuppance, I guess, in the end, really, yeah. um, we, uh, I think we're supposed to be, uh, uh, we're supposed to question it. I think we're supposed to question everything. And we're also seeing it through his eyes as well. Yeah. So it's almost hard to not feel that way because you're in his point of view. So even if you don't like it and you don't agree with it and it makes you uncomfortable, I think that that's important. I think that actually is a good thing that it makes you uncomfortable. And, um, and I I think that was how they meant to, they meant to make it that way. Because it is kind of, it's when you see those naked women and they're dead, it's scary. Like that's when the movie gets real scary. Because they seem, because they seem when they're, because he cuts off their hair and he like strips them down to basically just, just themselves. And it makes them seem less like people too. And that's the frightening bit. Like it's, it takes away who they were. Like, it takes away their identity in more ways than yes. one. And it's frightening. Well, especially the hair. That's actually a really good point because a lot of people, a lot of men, I guess, too, but a lot of women really identify with their hair. Yeah. Yeah, that they are literally, their your clothing, right? Your clothing, yeah. you can how, kind of express yourself. Express, yeah. And especially back in the day, women had very limited ways to express themselves. Extremely limited. And like with hair or clothes or like that was something they could control and identify themselves by, you know, 
And he's taking that away. Yes. And it's different women, too, which, again, which is we talked about, like, there's a nun is one of the victims. Mm-hmm. There are rich young women. There are poor young there women. Sex workers. Sex workers. Yeah. And the, the one sex worker that he kills um, is it's actually kind of sad in the film because they kind of talk about how they kind of push her to the side almost. Yeah. It's like nobody really cares that people are being killed until the two twins are. Yeah. Till the rich people and, start dying off. Yes. When she, the sex worker, dies, it's like, you know, people get upset, but nobody, yeah. yeah. And he almost does it because he just wants to see if it will work. He doesn't actually, (laughs) and it does because her dog comes to him. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so she, even in the film, gets pushed to the side. And that's another issue that we have in the true crime community where it's sex workers don't get the justification that they deserve as victims either. She doesn't in this. So it's interesting. According to Damon O'Rarick, quote, for Jean-Baptiste Grenouille is no mere murderer, not even a mass murderer. He is a serial killer at the quote-unquote crucial site in the public sphere, where, as Mark Seltzer notes in his handy introduction to serial killers for beginners, private desire and public fantasy cross. And as Philip L. Simpson points out in Psychopaths, his study of the serial killer in American film and fiction, he says, quote, in our attempt to understand serial killers, we inevitably create myths about them. Works of fiction that may superficially portray the serial killer as the ultimate alien or enemy of society, but which simultaneously reflect back upon society in its own perversions, fears, and murderous desires, unquote. And Sonia Bailo, Alure, Alu, oh, how do you say it? argues that fictional and non-fictional accounts of serial killers maintain a symbiotic relationship. Uh, Nowadays, we witness how, on the one hand, real life serial killers are narrativized by the media by turning their killings into coherent patterns or how they copy the murders of fictional serial killers. Um, On the other hand, we see how serious literature writers of great prestige write true crime literature, or how fictionalized fictional serial killers copy the deeds of real killers or try to uh, resemble them. Mark Seltzer describes such narratives as part of a wound culture marked by the public fascination with torn and open bodies and torn and open persons a collective gathering around shock trauma and the wound it is the combination of mutilation and spectacle that provides the necessary titillation for the first purchase it is repetition that keeps the consumer transfixed on the unfolding serial killer narrative so unfortunately unfortunately we like this narrative (laughs) I, i i don't know if it's even like i think it becomes an addiction of sorts um like, it's a, I don't know how the best way to explain it, but, like, yeah, it becomes, it becomes, you need to accelerate the exposure. It's like, when you get, for example, horror movies. So, certain horror movies that scared you when you were younger won't have the same level of impact as you get older because you get exposed to 
more graphic or intense versions of horror. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, you become jaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You become almost numb to it. And it's the same kind of idea I feel like they're trying to get at here is where it needs to it needs to get more and more extreme in order to like keep the person transfixed and like same way same way a killer oftentimes works that they need to like in order to feel the same things they felt with the first one it needs to get worse or more frequent or like you need to accelerate in a certain way um yeah yeah it's brutal listener what do you think about (laughs) serial killers and serial killer worship and true crime culture uh i know for the last two years my tastes have changed and i don't quite listen to as much true crime podcasts or watch true crime shows could be because i'm a, a new mom could be because of the pandemic could be both or i don't know it's interesting to for me to kind of reflect on that kind of stuff lately yeah. so let me know what y'all think Okay, so to finish this off, uh, Heather Addison says, quote, Grenouille's assertion is remarkable for two reasons. First, it is a construction of beauty beauty rooted in the terms of heterosexual patriarchy. It underscores the notion that ideal human beauty, even when it is associated with something as intangible as scent, is young female beauty. Second, Though Grenouille privileges scent as the foundation of beauty, he does not divorce physical beauty from scent. In other words, physical beauty becomes a necessary but not sufficient condition for sublime scent. Most beautiful girls do not have a sublime scent, (laughs) but every girl in the novel with a sublime scent is also physically beautiful. Uh, When Grenouille begins murdering young girls to collect their scents, Laura's father, trying to detect a pattern in the crimes notes quote they the victims all each in their own special way had been a daz- of dazzling beauty and he says this in the movie as well mm-hmm. thus these girls are worthy of notice only in so much as they embody the patriarchal ideals of female beauty female worth and identity become abstract qualities rather than functions of the unique personality each woman has to offer unquote uh, which kind of brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. Grenouille doesn't really care about where they come from in life, whether they're rich or poor, but they all are white and they all are young and they all are women. Yeah. There's also the factor that like there doesn't seem to be, you know, he's not sexualizing them. No, he's not, which is almost like it's not we kind of go meta here. Mm-hmm. It's not really his fault. I mean, he is a fictional character. <laughs> it's the fault of the men who wrote this yeah. film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the portrayal of the women within it. Um, yeah. Right. And we have a, oh my gosh, we knew this was going to happen where we would go over an hour with this, <laughs> but um we still have a few more things to talk about, so maybe we should move on. Listeners, <laughs> let us know what you think. Uh, Kate, what's our next topic? Okay, so as mentioned earlier, um, identity is a major pillar of uh, of the analysis of this film and the characters within it. Um, so we're going to talk about the sense of self. Um, yes, pun intended. So a major, <laughs> a major theme of this film is undoubtedly about identity and the pursuit of self, even if it's problematic um i think we can agree that grenouille's pursuit of self is not the most 
healthy method or the most considerate or legal, but it is a major pillar. And if not the singular theme of this film, uh, it's, it's complicated. So um, Grenwy takes a long time to speak as a child because his interaction with the world is so heavily based in scent that sound is almost non-essential. His real sensory application is through smell, and he finds it difficult to relate and identify with others. Um, and others find it difficult to relate and identify with him. So while his sense of smell functions as a doorway to the world around him, it prov uh, proves a barrier socially. So the other children cannot understand him and therefore fear him because of it. Um, and during his journeys to the town of Grass later on, uh, Grenby comes across a cave that functions as an ancient sensory deprivation chamber of sorts. It's very old and without any scent of its own, which allows Grenby to sit and meditate without a sensory overload of the world around him. And after sitting in a cave for an undisclosed period of time, and in the novel it's mentioned that he's there for seven fucking years, which confuses me how he survived that long without food yeah. and water, but... I, I, well, he must have had food and water. I mean, he had stuff for travel, but I don't recall that in the book. Like, I don't recall that segment. It's been a long time since I read the book. Um, but I don't recall how he... I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but whatever. It's fine. Moving on. Um, he comes to realize that after this extensive meditation, that he too is without any scent. Culturally and historically, I also think meditation uh, meditation is utilized to find peace or focus or guidance or a person can even use it as a reflection of themselves to better understand themselves and in this meditation that he takes in this natural and sacred place Grenwy finds that he has no self he is without scent and therefore by his own logic has no soul or existence yeah this is a really interesting part where it's like where someone who so it's kind of, it's gonna sound cheesy but like he could have decided to use his powers for good or evil <laughs> and he ended up when he had this time to reflect he uses it for evil you know what would so his I superhero think... name be captain smell captain smell <laughs> No, I can't think off the top of Nostral my head. Man. <laughs> Nostral man. <laughs> oh god. They just keep getting worse. Listeners, let us know what his superhero yeah. name would be. <laughs> Captain Captain Smell. Captain Smell. <laughs> oh god. Um, so yeah. So there's a there's a part of the film um before this cave sequence when Grenwy is working for Baldini and he says the soul of all beings is in their scent and upon realizing that he has no scent himself he realizes the gravity of being invisible in the world he is unseen in being unscented and he longs for an identity of his own so Grenwy is hungry for the scent of these women but I believe it's because he covets that beauty and fragility and identity they have innate while he has none um, Gracie, when we were, <laughs> we were talking about this episode long before we recorded and, um, what we wanted to say, and you brought up a very interesting parallel between Grenwy's character and Jane Gum, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, which kind of just blew my mind. Um, oh, it was welcome. pretty amazing. She's oh, pretty thanks. amazing, folks. Um, <laughs> 
Gee, golly gosh, mister. Um, So both characters are canonically serial killers that target young women, obviously. Um, Both hunt in shadows and at night. Um, The scene of Gum stalking Clarice in their basement as some aesthetic parallels with Grenouille stalking the girl with the plums, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm. I'd love to see those side by side sometime. Um, yeah, somebody make that. Super creepy. Um, and both are very unhappy with their identities and longing to be more than they are. And their murders of these women are motivated by obtaining physical trophies to create that new identity for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. In Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal says at one point that Gum, quote, covets what he sees around him every day, unquote. It's the same thing for Grenwi. Grenwi covets these women, and although there certainly could be a trans allegory in there, there's more on queer coding in just a moment. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of trans people do consider Silence of the Lambs a trans film. Yes, yes, absolutely. Which, you know, that is... Yeah, that's obviously something that, like, I respect and, <laughs> and I would, that I can't really comment on, but I see yeah. why they would think that. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to know an analysis of this film as a trans allegory, if there is one. I couldn't find one, but... Um, yeah, there's very few queer readings of Perfume. It's really wild to me. Yeah, yeah, so that's why you couldn't find anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good to know. Um, so don't worry, because I also looked. <laughs> All right. I'm not, I'm not that bad. Um there is actually a defined covet- uh, covetousness in Grenouille for these women and the need to possess what they inherently are. Um, maybe not as women, but that I- the fact that they have an identity in general, he covets. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's their youth or beauty or virginity or femininity that makes them the most appealing to to them you can't really say for certain but something within those aspects um makes the women valuable and present in this world in a way that we never was would be or could be right yeah hmm food for thought yeah (laughs) it is food for thought it's and uh, you know when we were researching this it actually was really difficult finding a lot of scholarly articles yeah. about this film, which again shocked me. I was like, nobody's talking about this movie. Critics hate this movie. Like, why? Why? I don't get it. I think there's a lot to say here. Obviously, we're over an hour into this. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and because what we could find ha- made really good points. I think it's so. Let's. I think it's just oh, like. Let's the, go ahead. No, I think it's just the game of the Marge Simpson meme. I was like, I just think they're neat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, let's get into our final thought, which is uh, reading Perfume as a queer film. Um, Like I said just a little bit ago, there's hardly any scholarly articles on this film, especially scholarly articles about it being a queer film, which really shook me to my core. Because it's so, to me, there's so much queer readings. There's so many queer readings of this. Um, I found a Blogspot review called In a Nutshell, and the reviewer, who is queer, uh, said, 
quote, Perfume is a queer movie. In fact, I'm tempted to say it almost falls into the same fantasy-like genre as Mirror Mask or Pan's Labyrinth, except that it's darker, has more black humor, and takes itself at times very seriously, mm. unquote. And David Lamble says, quote, Our hero, an odd appellation for an individual linked to the deaths of 25 women, has a somewhat Baroque-sounding name for one of such lowly birth. Jean-Baptiste Grenouille has one overwhelming goal, to discover a fragrance so wonderful that it will usher love into the life of its creator. Grenouille is therefore a queer character, but only lacking a sex drive or even an appreciation of beauty except as it serves his obsession. He doesn't kill his victims out of malice or kinky thrills, but merely to extract their fragrance, unquote. And Kate, you and I were talking about this a few days ago, Mm -hmm. but um, Grenouille is definitely coded as asexual. Yes. And... You could argue that it's a bad representation of asexuality because at the end he doesn't like the fact that he can't physically connect with people, which as an asexual, yeah, yeah, which as an asexual, that's not the point. There are ways to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there is a disappointment in him is kind of like a... Uh, if you're going to look at it as asexual, it's not a good representation of a- asexuality. Asexual does not mean aromantic or anything of that sort. Like, there's No, and there are... There. S- right, and there are some aromantic people, yeah. but I would I would consider Grenouille as a romantic asexual yeah. who maybe thinks that he... The fact that he can't connect sexually might be his issue i don't know it depends but i that's the other thing too it's like he easily could be a romantic as well though because he's, he's not rom- sociopath <laughs> right because he's not he's he might be a romantic because he um doesn't connect with people at all mm-hmm. and it's more so yeah like an obsession like he's he is more He's he's more obsessed with the smells of people than he is with actual people. Yeah. So yeah, he could be. Who knows? <laughs> who <laughs> knows? Throws, really? Throws papers out the window. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I knew. I was like, I got into this, and I thought I'm just gonna start rambling on, and and my thoughts are gonna just drop off a cliff, and there's gonna be no ending to them. <laughs> Never. <laughs> They're just going to fall forever <laughs> into the abyss. Um, so I found another queer review site called Cocky Films, <laughs> where the reviewer is also queer. And they said, I couldn't wrap my head around the movie at first until it occurred to me that maybe we just sat through the whole film because it is exactly on a thematic level a queer experience, unquote. And the reviewer goes on to say, quote, the protagonist throughout the whole film is after two things. The first is scent and scent alone, and the second is societal approval. Ultimately, his pursuit of the perfect scent outdoes the pressure of society. In his first killing, which was entirely accidental, he feels remorse at his deed or 
perhaps indifferent to it. He isn't after sex like a regular, quote-unquote regular male may be after. This idea that he is after sex is the conclusion of the oblivious watcher. His pursuit of intoxicating scent of lust, love, female innocence, whatever it is that scent symbolizes, is based on an entirely fictional sense of smell. In the scene where he is to be condemned, he waves the scent and everyone has an orgy. <laughs> the only one left out of the orgy is our protagonist. <laughs> His sense of smell supersedes the sexual pursuit, so it is difficult to read him as simply a sexual addict. He is instead a scent addict, uh, interested in holding on to a scent. If anything, he is sort of asexual and hypersensual, if you will, unquote. Uh, and so the reviewer goes on to say at the end of their review, uh, for me, the biological anomaly, this olfactory sense, is the theme that captures the unconsciousness of the queer viewer, unquote. So, yeah, uh, to end uh, this part here, I have a quote from Victoria O'Rourke, who says, describing the first death of the plum girl, uh, but it, but it's completely non-graphic and almost underwhelming, which is why it is so perfect. Grenouille hasn't committed a murder for a sexual purpose. In fact, he could be described more accurately as asexual. He is also, he is so intoxicated by her scent that takes her life, that uh, he is so intoxicated by her scent that he takes her life mercilessly and leaves the scene of the crime with absolutely no remorse. So this person says he leaves without remorse. Uh, I think it's kind of both, uh, but only an intense desire to keep that smell or at least its memory with him until he dies. Scent is his only passion, one that gravely removes normal human traits like guilt or love, unquote. So yeah, I think I, think I get the whole idea of him being asexual. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm uncomfortable <laughs> with it being a good representation. <laughs> yeah. It's not really. No, not it's not. Best. But I can see if you code it as queer, you can see, uh, you can definitely see him as that type of character for sure. Um, there's a joke in the ace community that um, asexuals are uh, obsessed with dragons. <laughs> it's like a joke that like they are more interested in like fantasy lives and like unattainable things because there's they're not interested. We're not interested in actual like sex. So there are other things that like there are more we important enjoy, things, like dragons, right? Like dragons, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, when you look at it from that angle where Grenwy is more interested in perfume than he is in having sex. So if you look at it maybe in that way, yeah, you can definitely see it coded as asexual. It's just weird because he's not a good guy. No. So it's, you know, but, you know, horror has always coded their villains as queer in some way. Yeah. Uh, whether it be in Dracula's Daughter. Um, I talked about this in my essay about asexuality and horror, but Frankenstein's monster could easily mm -hmm. be considered asexual. Um, so uh, Final Girls, even though they're not the monsters of films, like they could also be considered ace. Bright There's of Frankenstein, lots of, too. 
she easily could too as well yes and there's a lot of different representations of ace and horror uh and that's just how it's always been and how it always will be and you know what so that's pretty cool that is pretty cool yeah (laughs) All right. Well, hey, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. It was only four hours long. Only. <laughs> it was so long. We had a Lord of the Rings moment where we had you had to switch out. You had to switch out the DVD oh, and put in the new one. Those are the days. Got to switch them out halfway through. Oh my Titanic God. VHS. You know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i remember when i got that vhs tape oh, yeah. tapes uh, oh, for yeah. christmas viewers mm. if you or listeners if you don't uh, know what a vhs is feel free to write in we'll try to explain because we're old <laughs> <laughs> i would hope so if you were listening to this you're old enough to know what a vhs oh, is <laughs> i'd like to think <laughs> our children won't it'll no. be it'll, nah, maybe nah. no no they won't <laughs> Okay, so big shout out and a thank you to Kate motherfucking Scully for being my co-host this week while Abby is on maternity leave. Kate, thank you so much for being an amazing friend and for supporting the show. Thank you, Gracie. And it's always a blast being on the show with you. And I'm really excited for another amazing season ahead. Oh, boy. Abby and I just text the other day about like when we were coming back and doing this because she's back in school obviously and she has her stepson and her baby and she's like trying to get a schedule together so once she figures out her schedule we'll be back season Uh, 10 though right oh my god yes our 100th episode is coming up what the heck so exciting. I know. Gotta do something oh. special oh my god I don't know what to do help help people hold me (laughs) hold me (laughs) Listener, if you enjoyed the show, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on Good Morning Nancy, so let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. We're still in the process of rebuilding our website. Uh, Maybe I'll get it done this time (laughs) this year. I don't know. Uh, I will try. (laughs) Uh, But make sure you all follow us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to tell a friend and to spread the word about our show as well. And don't forget, Black lives still matter and trans lives still matter. So please check out our show notes and how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. <laughs>